Welcome to Life of Brian, dot, 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 Mannix, that is. And here is the dot, 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 and the Mannix, that is, and the Brian part of it, Brian Mannix. Well, Kev, um, I've got a special message for the Australian Minister of Defence. Oh, yeah. Here we go. But, no, we need to take note of where America's going, and they're, they're getting electric tanks. And this is a great idea. I think we should look into getting electric tanks because the beauty of it is when you're invading enemy lines and you're shooting the shit out of the front line and you're blowing up buildings and killing soldiers, at least you know with your electric tank that you're not contaminating their environment, which is, of course, more important than blowing the shit out of it. Thing. But the problem, <laughs> a problem with the electric tank, though, um, yeah. is is that you need to have a trailer behind the electric tank because the battery is actually bigger ah. than the But, hey, it's all about protecting the environment and um, I think this is a road we should definitely drive down. Right. Electrically. Let us <laughs> let us keep that in mind. Electric tanks is uh, Brian's uh, wish for Christmas for 2023. Absolutely. Uh, it doesn't do the goldfish any good, the electric tanks, but never mind, that's that's the way it works. Well, well Kev, actually, they want to have electric boats. Oh, uh, they do. They, they, oh. These greenies are just out of control. Oh. Now, the electric boats, oh, here we go. the battery is so big, we're not sure that the boat will actually float, but if it does, <laughs> there's not going to be much room for you and your fishing gear on it. But Which is good for the environment because it means you catch less fish and you don't muck up the uh, the ecosystem. There you go. Well, but here lies the problem, and <laughs> Donald Trump brought this up to a, a boat manufacturer. He says, well, if the boat sinks, do I get electrocuted? <laughs> and the boat guy said, nobody's ever asked us that. I've never thought about it. Um, so I think electric tanks and electric boats can just have a little wait for a while. Yeah. Okay, let's just readdress that down the track in about 10, 20 years. Good idea. Great show coming up for Life of Brian with thanks to our very good friends at Mercots. Now, the good news is jump on their website now, mercots.edu.au, and gift vouchers are available and special 15% offer for Christmas. Well, guess what happened to me the other day, Kev? I was I was out, I lost my phone, I was stranded, I had no money, I was in the middle of nowhere and I needed to call somebody because, you know, these days all your phone numbers are just on your phone and if you don't need your phone, you don't know anybody's number. So the only number I knew off my heart was one three hundred triple five five seven six. I rang up Mercotts. Not only did they pick me up and get me safely home, but they gave me a driving lesson as well. And they've been doing that since 1969. Aren't they good people? Oh, 69. <laughs> oh, God. Oh. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so jump on the website or ring that number, the, the only number that Brian actually remembers. And now that I think about it, I think it's the only one I know off, off the top of my head too. Um, well, 
I just wanted – I'm going to have to say it again, Kev, because now you put 69 into the e equation, everybody's confused, but it's nothing to do with 69, everybody. Nope. It's one three hundred triple five five seven six. Fifteen percent off vouchers available right now. Get the get into that for Christmas for twenty twenty three. Now Deborah Conway is going to join us very shortly. She's our first guest on the program to talk about her book, The Book of Life, and about her fascinating career that's taken her from modelling to music to the stage to films to uh, to us. Not to mention the electric tanks. Exactly. She drove one of those at one stage. And our other <laughs> guest is uh, Peter Williams. Uh, Peter Williams uh, came to Australia back in the uh, early part of the 60s with Max Merritt and the Meteors. And then after, after not having a great career was with deported. them. Was deported. Was uh, deported yes. for bad behaviour. As most of those Kiwis should have been. Um, right. <laughs> at some stage. But then, of course, he, uh, he put together the groove, which uh, I have to say, if you had to... Uh, get me to nail one band in that late part of the 60s as a 10, 11, 12-year-old that I just adored. It was The Groove. I thought they were sensational. Kev, 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 you, you're kind of creeping everybody out here. You're talking about being a 12-year-old and nailing The Groove. It's, That's uh, me. Wow. <laughs> you should have seen me, Brian. Um, <laughs> <laughs> really, you missed an absolute treat there with my bowl hair, my, you know, the bowl haircut that I had. All that stuff, I was, I couldn't have been trendier. And, and your girl's bike. Yeah, my girl's bike, my bowl haircut. Uh, I couldn't <laughs> have been trendier. Uh, and and I love the groove, so a uh, great thrill for me to have a talk to Peter Williams, as you'll, uh, as you'll hear. And then, of course, he went from the groove to the mixtures, and now he's back in New Zealand uh, and enjoying uh, during the latter years of his life. So we'll, we'll catch up with him. So that's all coming up. It's going to be a good show. Well, it was good to mix up the groove. And uh, well done, Pete. And uh, Deborah, wow, what a legend. Well, let's get to Deborah Conway right now and have a chat about all the things that have happened to her in her life. I'll tell you one thing, though. Mm-hmm. I didn't realise she was friends with Carolyn Wilson. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm happy about that. Oh, but anyway, well, we'll get into that. Uh, you'll hear how, how that friendship started and uh, and how they are these days. So they're still great buddies. All right, here we go. Here's Deb. Both, both strong women. Good on them. So how are you, Deb? I'm okay. Good. How's the uh, how's the uh, being the author? How's that? Oh, the author's fantastic. Yeah. That's real fun. That is really fun. Um, uh, I'm absolutely loving uh, the fact that it's out there, that um, it was a long time coming and that now I have put a book out into the world and, and not everybody hates it, which is great. <laughs> did, did you find parts of it quite stressful to write because you got to relive shit that you went through? Then you sort of go, no, no you didn't. No. Wow. No, I just enjoyed it. I really enjoyed writing it. I like the surprises. I mean, you know, writing it's not stressful. I didn't, you know, I didn't go through that much stress in my life. Um, you know, I mean, really, when it comes down to it, when you think about all the stressful things that are going on in the world at the moment, yeah. I um, but I did find um, I did find reading it afterwards the uh, the audio book. I felt that I found that was quite confronting from time to time, and uh, you know that was. I guess that that layer of, um, in some way, in some way, you as a writer, you're filtering through the creative process, so you're not thinking about it in terms necessarily that of yourself. I mean, yes, it's, you know, yes, you're writing your own story, but you're you're an active 
um, creator of, of this story. And so you're more engaged with the creation as opposed to the lived um, memories of these things. Uh, it's just when, but when I was reading it, you know, that was that was stripped away and then all I was was a reader and yeah. then that was, that became very, um, it, from time to time it became quite emotional. Yeah. There is a slight yeah. detachment when you write as opposed to, to when you read because when you read it actually. I found so. Yeah, you're, instead, of, instead of creating it, you're actually reliving it, which is a slightly yes. different experience. Yeah, I well, found that. That's right. Well, it's certainly um, a busy life and um, a story well worth telling. Um, I, was, I was interested reading about your um, your modelling and you didn't really have the right attitude for that, did you? No. <laughs> I think I had a pretty good attitude, to be honest. I was a bit um, a bit take it or leave it. You know, yeah. It wasn't a career. I, I, I mean, I think I was fairly clear about that, really, very much. So you tell us about your modelling because I just uh, thought the modeling was, um, it was just a way of earning money so I could move out of home, buy myself a car, you know, yeah. support myself, and um, and it was a it was a good way to do it. And it was it was a pretty easy it was a pretty easy gig to get. And I was extremely blessed with uh, good looks, and I was tall, and you know, had a a good figure, so you know yeah. it was an it was easy. It was easy, and I didn't yeah. take it very seriously. But well. uh, <laughs> I didn't, and I often didn't. Um, I just thought I knew the way that I looked good, yep. and you know you turn up to these or you turn up to these kind of casting um, things where you were doing a shampoo commercial, for example, and they'd hire you because they thought, wow, she's got great hair. And then you'd get to the commercial and then they wanted you to brush it. And I go, no, 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 that's not going to work because if you want my great hair, it doesn't, it can't be brushed because it'll just turn into something completely other. And they didn't get it. Anyway, whatever, that was that was often the way and I just, I didn't care that much and because it's just hair. It's only hair. <laughs> well, maybe you had the right attitude towards modelling. I think I had a good attitude towards yeah, it. Anyway, yeah. I gave it all away at 23. 23, oh. it was all I had. I was modelling between 18 and 23. As soon as I could give it up, I gave it up. Right. Is 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 the bluegrass jeans thing the most memorable memento of the of that experience? Oh, you know, there was lots of them. There was lots of TV ads. I did so many TV ads. Uh, and, you know, I did, um, I was the Southern Comfort Girl. All right. Southern tastes like, um, you know, <laughs> sort of these, these um, you the filthy kind of double entendres. The, the, the big hot egg flip M girl. That's it, the big hot egg flip. Yeah, that was a big hot egg flip M girl. I was the big caramel girl in September. I don't know. Yeah, they people, I got a lot big, of work. <laughs> choc- chocolate um, milk. Chocolate milk. I was always a bit surprised, actually, because I just would look around and think, oh, no, they're so much more gorgeous than I am. Why are they hiring me? But anyway, they did. So, I, you know, I, re- I the stuff that I really liked doing was the fashion shoots, the Vogue stuff and everything, but um, the other stuff paid more money, definitely. So you endorsed chocolate milk and Southern Comfort. Well, there's a combination, isn't mm. there? <laughs> exactly. I might, I might try chocolate milk with Southern Comfort, see what it tastes like. Yeah, that's with, right. Uh, Exactly. It was a it was a broad church, broad church as far as I was concerned. Fair enough. 
Happy, happy to happy to sell whatever I was being paid to sell. <laughs> Music was always the thing, though, that was was you know hovering and and circling around everything that you actually wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the music didn't pay any money, so I still had to pay the rent. Yeah. So you know, luckily for me, I didn't have to work in a vitamin factory like Dorland or in a pipe factory like all of Hunters and Collectors or do bar work or. You know, I mean, that's that was the thing. Like modelling was just a really well-paid, menial job. But uh, the modelling, uh, sorry, the, the music was, um, I guess my first public appearance was in about 1979 and I played at some um, RMIT architectural review thing. And then after that, there was a tape made and after that, you know, I, I was talking to my friend John and he said, oh, you know, you you sound great. You really should join a band. And I, I, I don't know. I guess I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it. I hadn't thought it through like that. I mean, I was 20. But then, you know, he suggested it and I went, yeah, okay. And I did. And that was. So you um, put that in the paper. Was it Duke Magazine you put the ad in? I think so. Yeah. Duke Magazine. Yeah, I think it was. Virtually Singer Wants Band. Yep. Singer Wants Band. And that was the Benders. And I got two responses, <laughs> um, which was, you know, surprised me too. But, you know, uh, yeah, I got um, the, the Benders were, was one of them and the other one was a guy called Cypher and Lucas. Uh, and, you know, I met with both of them. I auditioned for the Benders. Cypher and Lucas I think wanted to, to use me before he actually heard me sing, but that's he'd been told by someone else that I could I was a good singer. And then the benders I went to audition for, and then it was like, um, you know, they were they were trying to vie for my attention, but none of neither of them were offering any any cash. And I nor did I ever think, nor did I ever think about asking for it. It was like, well, you don't get paid to be a musician, do you? That that would be just like what? Never even occurred to me. So you know, that's good. So the modelling, you know, it 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 served a fantastic function, which allowed me to be a free creative artist. And then I played at the Benders for eight months, and then I moved to to Sydney and with with Dorland, the drummer from the Benders, and and we we formed RME, and we got very serious about it all. Yeah, what was the difference by being in Sydney? It was just different players or just different environment? But what? Why did it become more? Serious? Uh, you you mean, well, I, I mean, I it wasn't really. My emphasis to move to Sydney, that was more Dorland because I, I was still a kid, you know. Yeah. I mean, at 2021, you're still kind of figuring, you're still kind of testing the waters of adulthood. And I was still, you know, enjoying Melbourne. But Dorland, who was six years older than me, said, no, 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 we've got to do this in Sydney. It's really important. And I went, okay, whatever. It doesn't bother me. I was happy to get further away from my parents. <laughs> and um, I think most kids are. <laughs> Anyway, so we did. And because he also had met Helen Carter at this point, so she was the bass player in Doremi, and uh, we moved we moved to Sydney and we um, he met he met up with Dawn, uh, he met up, he'd met up with Helen, but then I had to discover Helen from amongst all of the Helen Carters in Sydney, but you know not many of them played bass, so <laughs> that was a. Uh, that was an advantage. Anyway, I found her and then and the three of us were Doro Me. And, and then eventually we persuaded Helen's partner, Stephen Phillip, who was in at that time in a band called the Thought Criminals, 
to also join the band. He was he was helping us with auditioning other players, but he had been very reluctant to do it himself. And I I never really quite understood why. But anyway, we broke down his resolve, and uh, he joined RME. Okay, so the band's going, and what you you're playing gigs around town and stuff, and writing songs. So and we, all we that. recorded first. Okay. We recorded first. We decided that we wanted to do things really differently to the way the Benders had done them, which was to play eight night, you know, eight eight months, five nights a week, you know, next to no people in every venue in Melbourne, every CD dive, and we just were playing and playing and playing, and you know, it was becoming really um, kind of tedious, actually, because I wasn't, I didn't love the music and the. The novelty of um, singing out front of the benders had worn off, and there wasn't anything much else to hold me. So we wanted to do things differently. And when we moved to Sydney, we decided that we would record first. So we, the plan was that we would record four EPs, extended plays, and uh, we recorded two of them. And then they were both both um, EPs. Tracks were picked up by alternative radio all over the country. And so people were talking and there was a vibe building and we thought, well, maybe we should try playing a gig. So I think we played our first show at the Arts House, which was a kind of, you know, not a, not a pub as such, not a venue as such, but, you know, an art space. And uh, it was hugely successful, huge numbers and, you know, packed it was packed and then we just we played a few more of those we never ended up making the second sorry the third and the fourth EPs but we'd made enough of the splash and we were attracting attention from the music industry so we had managers visiting and record companies and publishers were interested and we uh in due course we signed with Dirty Paul Management and Virgin Records Australia we were one of their initial signings along with Samurai Trash and Bear Garden and there was a big oh. event in um, in Bondi to celebrate these three signings. Then off we went to um, to London to record our our debut album, Domestic Harmony. And then when we came back, the whole idea of you know remaining elusive and not playing very much kind of fell away completely. And we mm-hmm. were playing once again. We were playing five nights a week, and we did that for about nine months. And but it was, but this time it was really it was really satisfying you know in a very deep level because the music was expressing something that I wanted to express that all of us wanted to express we were very very invested in what we were saying politically and we were very connected we were we were good pals and um yeah you know it was it worked Sure did. Yeah, sure did. Man Overboard um, still sort of is one of those songs that uh, you hear it you, it stays in your head for the next three weeks <laughs> Mm. <laughs> well, 40 years for me. Yeah, well. <laughs> can we go back to the, the house in Melbourne that you when, you when you moved out of home and you went into a house in Melbourne, it was like an all-star uh, sort of fest, that house in Melbourne of yours? Well, um, so I was living with a couple of journalists, Peter Wilmoth and Caroline Wilson. Caro had been was my friend since we were about 13 or 14. We, we met and... Uh, and uh, Peter Cap, who was a panel operator, Chris Hunter, who was in the Cuban Heels with Spencer P. Jones, um, and then when Caro moved out, Paul Hester moved in. So yeah, we, they were they were all very formative relationships, and pretty wild old house. wild old times for yourself. 
Wild, wild times, wild house. We had amazing parties in that house. We had like festivals basically because the backyard was so enormous and it was in a very kind of exclusive South Yarra suburb, this really, you know, kind of slightly decrepit old Edwardian place with a massive garden at the back. But, you know, it was, a, it was a lemon orchard. I mean, I don't know if I'm fantasising it now, but really it, it was huge. There's now an enormous block of flats on this on this block of land. Uh, so I don't think I'm completely fantasising about it, but I do remember that we had we had parties there and one time the police turned up and I had to um, to front up outside. I think Carol and I both fronted up outside, and I think both of us were, or maybe I can't say for Carol, but I know that I was pretty stoned and trying to hold it together <laughs> and saying, "What party officer?" I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe we needed a license. But I, years for years and years afterwards, I'd run into people who who had been to that party in Rockley Road. <laughs> Was the Caroline Wilson of, uh, of of that era the same sort of Caroline Wilson of this era? Well, she was always a tough broad. Yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. No, would yeah. stand up, would she not would always, not take a backward step and she, would stand yeah, up for herself. Yeah, that's right. She always knew what she was. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I loved her so much. That's why I still love her so much. Well, she did your book launch, didn't she? She did. Yeah. She did. She's a dear, dear friend. And and the other thing I wonder out of that particular little uh, little moment in time is Paul Hester's vacuuming skills. Yeah, was he absolutely? Was that something he was, he was good at? Hey, I think he did it to relax. It was like a you know a meditation for him. So whatever house I was living in, Paul would you know if he was a bit tense, he'd reach for the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> the whole house, man. Wow, perfect. The perfect flatmate. <laughs> What is that? And foot rubs too, vacuuming and foot rubs. Oh yeah, he was a great. He was a great foot rubber. Yeah. When you're writing, when you're writing the book, and and now that you've done the audio version of it, and you go back through moments like that, uh, you mentioned that it was confronting in some in some of those. Is that when it becomes confronting when you think back on people like Paul and the, and and there's a lot of people yeah, who you mentioned in the book who aren't with us anymore. Of course, of course. The um the acknowledgement section got me teary. I mean, really. Yeah, me like, too. So many. So many people that um, have gone to God. It's extraordinary. It's a it's yeah. a tough business, yeah. you know. Where is yeah. you down? When you when you're writing the book and you're thinking about your three kids did, uh, and Willie and the the family unit, uh, how do you feel about when you write about the early days and go through all the times that you went through pre them about them seeing um, your history? Oh, I felt good about it. Yeah, no, some people I mean, are uncomfortable with it. As long as I was writing in an entertaining way, as long as I was making beautiful sentences and putting them into gorgeous paragraphs and constructing them into, you know, gripping chapters, I was okay. It didn't, it doesn't matter. You know, what the content, yeah. content is, um, is, it's my content. I'm not going to shy away from it. I mean, that's the whole point. You know, you have to be you have to be truthful and you have to own it. Otherwise, why bother writing it? I mean, you know, mm. I got nothing to hide. I don't think I was, I'm a bad person. I mean, I did some bad shit, but you know. Who hasn't? Um you've done exactly. quite a you've done a, quite a lot of acting along the journey, haven't you? Um acting, so not really. Well, you were in the Coca-Cola Kid. You were in Running on Empty. You were in. <laughs> um, you did the voice for Tracy Mann in Sweet and Sour. 
I think there's a couple. I did the singing voice, Brian. I did the singing voice. I didn't. I I never. um, Yeah, that's a that that's just a that's a musician's role. You know, that's I was the, I was the um the unnamed voice of um. Well, I never. I can't remember the. Sweet Sal. Was it Carol? I think it was Carol. Her name. Oh no, no character name. I can't remember. In the, the character in um, that she played as a lead singer of the Takeaways, yeah. maybe Carol. Anyway, so I did the voice of Carol. I don't think that that's acting. The Coca Cola Kid. I literally appeared, you know, in one scene or something. Um, yes, running on empty. You could almost, with a very long bow, kind of almost call that acting. But possibly it was more like, you know, modelling clothes. I don't know. Um, and yes, I was in Prospero's books as well. That's true. And I did sing the role of Patsy Cline. But I think my, I think my acting skills have recently come to the fore in the show that Willie and I wrote to accompany this memoir called Songs from the Book of Life. So, hang on, so going back to what, what acting skills are you bringing to the table with this the, the show that you and Willie have put together about the book? It's a theatrical performance. Yeah, it's um, it is a there's a lot of text, and you know there. are there are characters and uh, one has to, you know, tell the story in all kinds of different ways, so visually, musically, theatrically, um, with movement, uh, with visual cues, lighting, the whole thing. Well, I have, one, I have one question about one story I saw in the book and I want to know if you've taken that to the theatrical part of uh, the thing. The Maccabi Diva story. Mm-hmm. Is that part yeah. of the is that part of the theatrical presentation? No. no. Do you no. want to do you want to share that with us? Sure, sure. It's um, it was a strange thing, you know. It's uh, weird. Weird. The ABC. It is weird. The ABC rang me up and really early one morning and said, you know, do you know that Maccabi Diva has been using? It's only the beginning to to in her with her first covering of. With a stallion Galliano, or you know, I think that, that that might that information might have come out, but I've kind of said it enough times that it's um, coming out the way I said it, as opposed to the way they said it. But nevertheless, uh, I'm like covering, what does does that mean? Maccabi Diva wants to cover; it's only the beginning. I don't know. I wasn't, <laughs> but you know, I had won a bit of money on Maccabi Diva in the past, so it was quite exciting. The the owners of Maccabi Diva were huge. It's only the beginning fans, and they decided that Maccabi Diva need to, to uh, conceive her first foal with um, the Sally and Galliano, accompanied by It's Only the Beginning as the romantic soundtrack. Hilarious. Wow. And I love the way I you that. turned it into a trivia question. Yeah. Yeah, well, I used to do it. I used to say it on stage sometimes and say, "What other female athlete might? What female athlete might have uh, used it's only the beginning to conceive their first child?" <laughs> Hilarious. That's oh, very funny. Hilarious. Very funny. Well, it's only the beginning. Sort of had a couple of different lives, didn't it? In terms of uh, was written as 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 it as we now know it, but then you changed it. So it was written. With the lyric that it has now, but I, I did when I when I had written it, I kind of I felt uncomfortable about it because you know I just come out of Me and I didn't do jolly love songs. It wasn't part of my oeuvre, and I kind of felt a bit uncomfortable about it. And so I tried to rewrite the lyric and made it 
depressing, nihilistic piece about a self-destructive young woman who couldn't face her own future. Um, but, um, yeah, it was a mistake. It was a terrible mistake. So I, uh, so I chucked it and went back to the original. I mean, this was when I was making a dance record for Virgin. Oh, so right. Yeah. Not that it's only the beginning. is in any way a dance track. I can't even remember. I can't even remember how we treated that song. But we did record it as a dance piece, and I'm sure it was absolutely awful. <laughs> and I'm always very grateful that no one's ever heard it, that <laughs> I don't have to hear it either because I don't know, I don't have a copy of it or even know where the copies are. So, The Patsy Cline thing, like I'm a big fan of Patsy Cline. Were, were you a big fan? To do, I suppose you were. To yes, I was a big fan. It. Yeah. I think she was one of the great singers of the 20th century, absolutely. I do too. And it was um, an incredible, incredible um, task to to fill those shoes. She was she was just totally awesome. I didn't have to act in that either. All I did was stand sing. up and deliver the songs, and well, uh, and try and try to my the best of my ability to inhabit in some way Patsy Cline. But of course, you can never do that because she's her and I'm me, and you know there are there are limits as to how. Yeah. And but I just but I decided you know what. I can I can twist my I can beat myself up about this for not really sounding like Patsy Cline, or I can just, you know, give it do do what I can to sort of honor that yeah. style. And that's and that's what I did. And yeah. uh, and I really enjoyed it. It was they're beautiful songs and um, it was a beautiful show. Yeah. Is there any other act you'd do something like that for? Any other uh, Oh, yeah, you know, yes, yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. Stay tuned. Okay. okay. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> Stay tuned. Fair enough. So what is coming up? Deb, you're taking the, obviously, you and Willie are doing the, uh, the, the theatrical version of the book. Uh, around Runs the, from around. the Book of Life. We've, yep. got a few, we've got a few shows planned. There's a couple of announcements that are coming up soon, which I can't divulge at this point, but they are coming. Um, and uh, there are there are some there are some things on the horizon. So you know, including I think I think there'll be some time set aside to to write new songs and and stuff. It's a bit hard to know how to um, to navigate this new musical world, really, because uh, mm. physical physical um, music, you know, records, CDs, whatever doesn't seem to kind of enjoy a market anymore. And then, you know, I mean, the streaming thing is just, it's just, it's kind of pretty awful. So I don't know. I'm I'm confused about it. Get a million hits and you get a thousand dollars. Rock on. Yeah, that's right. So maybe it's like, maybe it's kind of a live thing. I I don't really know. I'm still trying to work it out. I'm still trying to wrestle with it. That's why, you know, hey, being an author is not a bad thing. (laughs) Is the the Book of Life going to become a movie? (laughs) I don't know. I'm not a producer. I doubt it, but um, I guess it's possible. Anything's possible. Well, you know, it, it, it's a it's a great story. I mean, some of those stories, uh, there's great stories of, of you as a, as a child. You know, running over your sister's head with a bicycle, and all. You know, mm-hmm. there, there's there's action aplenty in there. You know, there's there's oh. young love. There's there's a happy ending with you and Willie. There's it's it's got it all, Deb. It's got it all. It's got it all. Yeah. Anyway, I I I don't know. I'm not sure that that's the case. But you know, hey, you know, it could happen. 
Could happen. I, I, Who, uh, yeah, then, then the question is who's going to play me. But I, I, I would think my daughter would be terrific at playing me, yeah. the middle one, middle daughter. I mentioned that to her the other day. She said, oh, no, I wouldn't do that. How, so. how did that go down? She said, oh, no, I don't think I could do that. I think she could actually. Yeah. She did a great job, but we we, don't, we can cross that bridge when we come to it. Yeah, fair enough. Really. <laughs> so. <laughs> so when, anyway. when did you two meet? When did you two first discover? I don't know if I met you, but I saw you um, playing with the Benders and I think it was a band called Seven or Figures playing with you. And I knew the guy in Figures, David Cameron, and he said, check out this band. And um, – I saw you play and I thought you were great, but um, I don't think I actually oh. met you that day. I'm, I'm not sure when I actually met you. I, I don't know either. I imagine it was backstage at one of those big concerts. Yeah, I reckon so. But I don't really, I don't I don't have a memory of a specific moment. I feel like no. I just know you. Yeah, it's sort of one of those. Oh, yeah, and not yeah, particularly yeah. well either, but I'm sure, we, you know, we've got lots. Yeah. I, we, we did do, not that long ago, we did a photo um, together backstage at the Palais. That was, uh, yeah, the Palais with um, you were on it, Chantuzzi's are on it, uh, I was on it, I think Scotty Kyle was on it, um, oh, Hush were on it. Well, that we That's probably the same time, last time we were in a room together. Well, hope life is good for you, Deb. Congratulations on the book. It's a, it's a sensational read. It's really, it's very, very entertaining. Yeah, well done. Thank you very much. I'm uh, glad you liked it. No, it is. It's and very entertaining. And it's available in all good bookstores. And what about if they and come bad ones gig? too, I believe. Mm. What? Well, that's even better. Uh, no, congrats on the book and uh, and uh, continued uh, good luck and, uh, and and thanks for thanks for having a chat with us. Thank you yeah. very much. Keep on. Keep on rocking, Deb. Thanks, Deb. See ya. I will. You too, Brian. Bye. Cheers. Bye.
is the song that had uh, a few uh, versions, as you, you heard Deb talk about there. Uh, only the beginning. What a massive hit that was for it. Now, Brian, you're not in this interview because uh, of the time difference with New Zealand. I did this one early in the morning with uh, Peter Ooh. Williams. Came yeah. out came out here with Max Merritt. We will talk about all the stuff that he's done. But uh, in terms of a, a band that I was really wrapped with as, as a kid, uh, The Groove were one of the best. So uh, big thrill for me, as you'll hear. Please indulge me as I talk to uh, one of my teen idols, um, mm. Peter Williams, right here on The Life well, of Brian. Did, did you know that I saved Max Merritt's life? How'd you do that? For a time. Um, well, we did a big concert for him. Yes. Um, uh, Mossy was there and me and Paul Norton and Wendy Stableton and Farns Band and we, I think we raised about 250 grand to buy him a dialysis machine. Yeah, that's right. We kept him alive for a couple of years. It was a video and we sold a whole lot of shit and um, so, you know, and then, you know, he came back to life and we got a nice photo with him. So, you know, how about me? Yeah. I say people's lives like a paramedic. <laughs> Woo. Brian Maddox, paramedic. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> they are the most important people on the planet. They, anyway. Bloody oath they are. Bloody oath they are. All right, let's have a listen to a man who, uh, who also... Just a, quickly, yeah. before you get into yeah. the interview... Yes. paramedics, you know why they're so good? Tell me. Because they dial one three hundred triple five five seven six, and they get extra driving skills from Mercots, and that's why they're safe and they're saving lives. All right. Here's Peter Williams. Hey, Peter, how are you going? Very good, mate. Very good. Good to hear from you, mate. Yeah, you know, oh, this is a bloody thrill for me. I was a, a massive Groove fan back in the day. 
Oh, right. Oh, fantastic. My, uh, my dad had a service station in a place called Strathpine, which you wouldn't remember, but it was just on the outskirts of Brisbane. We had a service station. The pub was across the road, and you guys played the pub. I reckon I must have been – it would have been 69 or 70. And, oh, yeah. And dad, dad had the, uh, the service station. So I worked on the driveway of the service station as a 12- or 13-year-old. And, oh, uh, yeah. And you were playing at the pub across the road that night and you did a sound check in the afternoon. I almost wet my pants. I, <laughs> I seriously went, what's that? And Dad said, oh, it's the, the bear. There's a band on over there tonight. And I said, that's the bloody groove. He said, <laughs> and, you know, the men of the, it's the what? <laughs> I said, it's, mate, it's the groove. <laughs> Strathpine, was it? Uh, a, a loving and lasting memory I have of standing pumping petrol into a car and hearing, I think I think you might have done Simon Says as part of the sound check or something, and it was like I went, <laughs> what the f- Anyway. <laughs> oh, my word. I, I, can, I think I can vaguely remember that too, you know, but I, I do have a very good memory, but um, sometimes things escape me. Yeah. Well, let's, let's test the memory and have a, have a chat about uh, about that. When when uh, you came across with Max and the and the medias, was that was that when yep. you made the crossing? When was that? Was that sixty seven or sixty eight? Uh, when we we came up, no, be earlier than that. We oh. came over. I I seem to recall us guys like the meteors with Max. We went to Dunedin to see the Beatles. Oh, right? wow. And that was when the Beatles toured, which was sort of wintertime, June-ish. Yep. And I think 64. And I know at the end of 64, we then went to Australia. We only went to Australia for three months. And we we never came – I never came back to New Zealand, neither did Max, for like 30-odd years, you know. <laughs> What were, what were those? What were those early days with Max like? Because I mean, Max is you know revered as a, as you know one of the greats. So, what, what was the dynamic of the band in those days? It was we were a Beatles lineup: two guitars, bass, and drums. Yeah, I joined just before like the Beatles surfaced, and we were actually doing a few shadows numbers. You know, yeah, yeah. And so that that was the dynamic then. Okay. So were you and Max oh, both singing? Yeah, yeah, we both. One one of the reasons that Max got me in the band is that my guitar teacher here in Christchurch um, recommended, Max said, who's your best guitarist? Who's your best student? And and it was a girl, it wasn't me. <laughs> and he says, and Max said, I don't want a girl in the band. <laughs> <laughs> so I got the job, you know. Max actually got me in the band because he was always worried, you know, how he had a husky voice. Yeah. He, he was always worried he was going to lose his voice. And so he wanted sort of another strong singer in the band. And that's more or less how I got the gig. You know, there was probably better guitar players around, but they wanted someone with a strong voice, you know. Yeah, yeah. Did that finish well or did that finish badly with Max or how did, how did that finish? Oh, with, no, it was always – with Max and I, we've always been very, very close that, that a lot of people didn't actually realise. But, no, what it was was that um, I j- just decided after you – know, at one stage there when some of the band were leaving that, and I just said to Max, I said, listen, I, I really want to try and be a lead singer in my own right. And, um, you know, I'm – in his situation, especially with the band being called Max Merritt and the Meteors, um, I was always – it never worried me, but I, I wanted to progress, in a sense, career-wise. Yeah. 
And, um, yeah, and he didn't so. I discussed it with him and um, it was very amicable and it, it was amicable over the years, you know. Yeah. Uh, the Groove was, was a band that uh, sort of got called a super group because of who everyone else in the band had, had played with at that time and you came obviously come out of the, 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 the band with Max. How did, how, did the, how did the Groove get together? How did you all sort of fall into a band? Well, it, it initially from my point, my, you know, point of view or what, whatever the word is, um, I was actually going, when I left Max and I was going to become a, a, a lead singer, as it was in a band, um, I was going down to Melbourne to join the Vibrance because Rupert Perry was uh, leaving and they needed a singer. So that was the – and then when I got I, – you know, that's how long ago it was. I jumped on a train in Sydney <laughs> with, with a suitcase and a guitar. I got down to uh, Melbourne, you know, the central station there, and I'm sitting on my suitcase – and, it, and back in those days, it was steam trains. And so it really was like a movie set. There I am sitting with all the steam from the train and all the passengers had gone and I'm still sitting there waiting for someone to come and pick me up from the Vibrance. And then out of the blue, Gary Spry, who I knew from, um, you know, because Max and us guys used to play quite a bit at Pinocchio's. Yeah in uh, Melbourne, and Gary come and said, oh, well, hey, there's been a bit of a change of plans. You're not joining the Vibrance. We're forming a supergroup. <laughs> <laughs> so it was very sort of, oh, are we? Okay. <laughs> Good grief. So uh, was the, was the you know, the Halcyon lineup, the Halcyon lineup, up you know, Rod Stone, Tweed, um, Jeff on drums? Uh, I don't think yep. You, yeah. I more or less was the the last cog in the wheel. Um, I think they'd already got, because it was being formed in Melbourne and Tweed and Rod and everybody was in Melbourne, but I was on my way down from Sydney and it, I didn't even know it was going to happen. So I don't know what they, if I had said, no, no, I don't want to do it, I don't know what they would have done or who <laughs> they would have got, you know, but um, who knows. And the rest, they say, is history. But uh, what a what a what a good history it was too. I mean, uh, he had great success chart wise and uh, and and gig wise. One of the hottest bands in the country. Well, what you, the interesting thing that what you just said before, back in Strathpine, there when you yeah. you think we were <laughs> playing um, Simon Says, right? The Groove. Um, it was actually. Max, Max and I back in you know Meteor's days, we went into um, HMV in Wellington and we were searching through all of their unreleased discs, looking for material. Yeah. And and Max found um, Simon Says and he says, "Hey, this would really suit you." And so I kept that in the back pocket. And in the same visit, we were there all day search, searching through these records. I found Fanny May for him. Oh wow. So it was we, we both more or less provided each other with, um, you know, on that visit we were looking for stuff for Max Merritt and Meteors, but um, he he more or less found my first hit with the groove, yeah. Wow, and it was a massive hit. Simon says it was, and, and it I, it still stands up. That song, just a great little song. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I you, you know I'm an unashamed fan of of of, of the. 
the the songs that you did. But I mean, I I, I was I've been listening to them for the last two days, uh, sort of you know, in preparation for talking to you. But soothe uh-huh. me, soothe me still. Uh, uh, relax me sounds fantastic. You are the one I love. Is I guess I, I think is my favourite song out of out of all of them. But what a soul works really well too. I mean, they, they all kind of they all kind of still stand up. Yeah, I, the only what a soul I always thought was a fantastic song, and I wasn't that you know happy with my vocal on it. But back in those days, you 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 know, you'd go into like um, Armstrong Studio in Melbourne, and we'd probably record half a dozen songs in one day, right? And yeah. now they'll take a week to, or sometimes two weeks, to record one song. You know? <laughs> yes. Those songs still really fond songs for you? Are they, are they songs that sit comfortably with you still? Strange as it may seem, I've never never, never done them. You know, I've never done, um, until I went back to Melbourne there three or four years ago for the Go Show yeah. thing, um, I'd never done Simon Says since the groove used to do it, you know, because wow. even when I joined the mixtures, you know, you didn't even you didn't even dabble in your old hits in those days. It was strange. That is strange. Tell me about winning the '68 Hoadley's Battle of the Sounds, and uh, you know, the Masters Apprentice was second, and Doug Parkinson's In Focus were third, and then you got a, a, a trip on a boat to go <laughs> the fair star to go to England. Oh well, that, yeah. I mean, well, that was just a huge thing to to win the you know the battle of the sounds we did put a lot of work and rehearsal into how we we did it and i was just w- listening to something on the internet the other day and i was listening to traffic you know stevie winwood and yeah eric Clapton. and i was listening to and we actually did one of the songs we actually played on the battle of the sounds apart from a couple of our hits was a traffic song and and i can't remember um off the top of my head, what it was called, but One another hits. traffic tune we used we used to do was, um, but I don't think we did it on the Battle of the Sounds, but because uh, Rod Stone used to play a bit of flute, so I'd, I'd play guitar on this, and the song was called "Giving to You." I'm obviously a big thrill to win that, and then to get the trip to go to England. Um, what, what were you What were you thinking before you got to England that might happen when you got there? I don't know. You just had to, just you know, read it as as it arrived. You yeah. know, whatever the story was. In fact, we were very well looked after by David Mackay, because it, when we arrived, we just got off the boat in um, Southampton, off the Fair Star, and then this was the start of the realization that um, the music industry was, you know, big time in England. We were. We were sort of watching all the other passengers that we'd made a lot of friends with on the boat, and we're watching them fighting to get their suitcases and that all on the boat train. And then uh, Dave Mackay and uh, EMI and everything had organised a Timpsons coach to come and pick us up. And we thought, wow, what? And so this, and and the Virgil brothers who were also on the boat, they got a. Um, because uh, Peter Gormley, Cliff Richards' manager, was going to manage them, and he sent for the Virgil brothers. They sent a uh, Rolls Royce. <laughs> so the reality of the music industry really, you know, stood out. The 
so you got you got a little train, and the Virgil brothers got a Rolls Royce. There's something going on there. Something wrong. Well, there. <laughs> yeah, no, we got a, we got our own bus. Oh, okay. Oh, good. So, yeah, and then and then the the poor punters on the on the the you know the, the first day with us, they all had to fight to get on this boat train. You know. Beautiful. God, I love the Virgil Brothers too. Temptation about to get me. What a great oh, song. God. And, and what a great singer. They all were great singers, but Peter Doyle, yeah. phenomenal singer. Yeah. I think it was, was a it? really nice guy too. Peter Doyle, Rod Lovett and Mel McGee. Is that, is that the – that was uh, – on uh, Yes, I think it was, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I rem- I, I, I loved I loved the Virgin Brothers. They shake me, wake me, and temptation about to give me. That's, yeah, that, that is that is right in my wheelhouse of my growing up. Uh, you know, <laughs> very heavily influenced uh, teenage years. So you got there. Um, so so what happened when you got there in terms of or did 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 you do some gigs? Did you go into a recording studio? What what was the plan? We weren't there long, um, and David Mackay had organised through um, EMI, a song for us to record. And we recorded it, and the song was called How the Web Was Woven. And so we did all the uh, orchestration and all that um, around the song. Which, and then the the writers of the song were Clive Eastlake and um, remember Mickey Most? The, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Mickey Most's brother, David Most, who, who was a very – um, influential record plugger around the radio stations in London. He wrote the song, and they initially offered to us, and we recorded it. And then they liked it at first, and then they turned around and said, "No, no, we don't like it. Uh, no, we don't want you to release it." So then we wrote Tweed and I wrote the wind, yeah. and we put the orchestration part around the wind, you know, and that we had put around. Um, how the web was woven, but the inter- I don't know whether you know the song "How the Web Was Woven." No, I'm not aware of it, Pete. Well, it, it was never released, you see, because they didn't want to release that version. But Elvis Presley ended up doing it after us. <laughs> so, we, but we never ours was never released, and the first release was actually a, a Liverpool band that was managed by um, Brian Epstein. Jackie Lomax was the lead singer. Oh, okay. Yeah, Jackie Lomax was signed to the, the, the Apple label at one stage, I think. Yeah, uh, he was because he was very closely connected to George Harrison. Yes, yeah. So Jackie Lomax, he did the first version of How the Web Was Woven. But only just recently I received a copy from Glenn A. Baker. Uh, someone told me after all these years no one had a copy of our version of How the Web Was Woven. Um, and, and I, you know, I never sort of received one when we were doing it in the studio and all that. And anyway, so Glenn sent me one, and shock horror, in a way, I was very happy that it was never released because <laughs> I didn't think much of it. Because <laughs> uh, the win was a it was a, a big departure from what you'd done previously, and I know it was one that you and Tweed wrote, but it was a big, big departure, and, and recorded at Abbey Road. Yes, and it, well, what. But, and it's still a great sounding record. Like that's the influence of Abbey Road. What a great studio! Yeah. Um, look, unbelievable. And so Abbey Road. But when you walk into Abbey Road, uh, I mean, and when I see it on on footage of you know those the Peter Jackson videos and all those things that I've that, that I've looked at over the years, it's not a it's not a terribly impressive looking building. But uh, obviously, there was something when you walked in there that you felt. Well, 
it, mind you, you see, the Beatles hadn't even they you know they were huge, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and they we they were sort of all there was one room in there which was totally full of equipment that the Beatles used whenever they wanted to record, and it, and half the reason it was sitting there was because the the uh, like Vox or whatever Fender or whatever the company was, the if if the Beatles used it, they'd sell it, you know, out in the shops. Uh, everything they touched turned to money for a lot of other people, not necessarily them, but they did all right in the end, I suppose. Uh, well, I always remember reading a story back in those days about a band called the Ivy, a British band, who became um, what's their name? Uh, Pete Ham was one of the yeah, members. Yeah, Badfinger. Badfinger, yeah, and I always remember hearing the story that they were struggling away. They must someone wanted wanted them to record an EMI or something, and they were doing a couple of demos or something. And um, Paul McCartney walked in and said, "Oh, hang on, we'll go and get some better gear." Than and so they got totally equipped by all this. Um, Beatles gear that the Beatles have been given, yeah. Oh God! So the the groove in England, you you did uh, you did uh, a fair bit of time there. So what what uh, how did how did that finish? Well, it was really tough going in a sense, but it was tough going because there was bands from all over the world trying to make it in England. So you had to really have something special, and in a sense. We just didn't have anything probably special enough in the end. But but the fact that Jeff was, when we broke up, that Jeff was picked up by the Bee Gees, and Jeff was a mighty little drummer. Yeah. So it was understandable that, you know, the Bee Gees picked him up straight away and we all went on to do other things. But it was it was hard work. Um, Tweet came back to Australia and did a lot of producing and writing and stuff, and you, you finished up in the mixtures. How did, how I did, did. How did that happen? Oh, well, it was it, how that happened really was that they were the mixtures ca- came over because uh, the push bite song was recorded, you know, in Aussie. Yep. And they came over, you know, because it was surging up the charts. And But Idris, who wrote the push bite song, just he, Idris is never a great guy and a great friend, but Idris just didn't want to be in a band, you know. Yep. He just wanted to doodle away there and do what he liked to do and sort of semi-country type music and all that. So he, he left and so the band said to me, do you want to join us? And I said, yeah. Was that a, was that a, a tough decision for you to make or did you, given given they'd had, you know, some pretty big hits and then that massive success with the Pushbike song? No, not, a, not at all. The only things that I had, I was thinking, because I was getting ready to come back to Australia when I was made the offer, and strange as it was may, may seem, I was, and I hadn't even gone down the road to it, but, but my only two thoughts were I might go back to Australia and see, and I, see if I can get in Jesus Christ Superstar, right, yeah. um, in the cast of that, or, and then all of a sudden up came the offer, and, like, you know, the you know the band was, the re, you know, around about, Number two or something, I think um, the Push White song was, and so it was an easy road into, you know, doing some more recording and writing songs. You know, had you written Captain Zero at that stage? I probably no, I hadn't. I, I think I'd when they asked me to join, I started to well, I started to think about well, I better start writing some songs that might suit the band. And yep. um, Mick Flynn and I, 
you know, started, uh, we sat down and came up with that, recorded it, you know. And that, that was a sizable hit for the mixtures. It was a big hit. Yes, it was. It was the only the only unfortunate thing for us was that we were coming back to um, Australia for a tour, and we were releasing Captain Zero, and, and that's why it became a, a good hit or a big hit back in Australia. But we were meant to go on top of the pops. This is the mixtures. Yeah. Um, and do Captain Zero on top of the Pops. And that was almost a certain road. If you could go on top of the Pops with your new record, you're almost certainly going to get at least top ten out of it. But we were on the plane on the way back to Australia. Oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Kevin, I always look, if I had had any real success, I would have bought a Ferrari and (laughs) – Wipe myself out on the M1 or something, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a lovely way to balance it up and to keep, keep yeah, it in that's right. keep that's it into right. perspective. So, with the mixtures, was it with the mixtures that you did the touring with the Rolling Stones, or when did you tour with the Stones? No, that was with Max. Oh, with Max. That was with Max. Like when we first got to Australia, and we were chugging along there and going, you know, building things up with Max. Well, we got, as I said, we got to Australia in late 64 and in 66 um, the Stones were touring. Uh, I think the searches were on the bill as well. And we, a lot of people don't really realise this actually, but um, Harry M. Miller took over managing us for the tour and a little while later, but, you know, with Max and the Meteors. And... Um, yeah, we just – it was one of those things, though, I don't think managing us guys was quite uh, in Harry and Miller's sort of field of expertise. He was more concerts and yeah, that sort of thing, you know? Yeah. And, and you two with Chuck Berry, was that with Max as well? No, that was later on. That was with the mixtures. Oh, right. That was – that was um, the mixtures sort of – Eventually, we're, we were working, or the last edition of the mixes was working in Perth in Western Australia, and Chuck Berry came out on a, a uh, you know, a tour at the Perth Entertainment Centre, as it was then, because I still remember that we, it, it was good fun, and so we backed him, um, but we did our own show as well, and yeah. there's a few, I can't remember who else was on the show, but at, at, at the very end of Chuck's um part of the show and the crowd is screaming the house down and and Chuck, I had a, exactly the same guitar as, as Chuck Berry, like a cherry red 335 Gibson, right? Yep. And that, and so Chuck was meant to go into his last song and he walked up to me and he says, oh, you you, you take the solos, you know? And I said, no, this is your show. This is while the show's on. <laughs> I said, this is your show. You do the solos, you know? <laughs> and so, anyway, he did his usual routine of quickly running out the back and grabbing his money and off. <laughs> yes, in uh, in brown paper bags, big, large yeah, brown paper right. bags. <laughs> there was one story that I heard, and I can't remember whether it was that show or something. I did hear about Chuck, though, where he, the money was in a black briefcase, his 10 grand or whatever he was getting for the show, and... Some someone else, another musician or another person backstage management or something, also had a black 
briefcase and Chuck picked up the wrong briefcase on his way out. <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't have been – You don't. I don't think you ever should get between Chuck Berry and a briefcase full of money. That's not a good place to be. So. <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, songwriting, uh, the, the obviously, I mean, we mentioned The Wind, which is one you wrote, and then and Captain Zero uh, you wrote with, with Mick in the in the mixtures days. Uh, songwriting was, was sort of uh, your livelihood for a little while there. Yep. Yeah, it was. And I actually did have a little bit of luck or round about that time, just before I joined The Mixtures, I think, I was just songwriting, but I actually wrote a, a couple of songs because not a lot of people were writing, and I thought, you know, and so I did it. The Marmalade, who did Oobla Dee, Oobla Da of the Beatles, yeah. they picked up one of my songs. They loved it, and, but it never ever got re- – it was released on their album, but they were going to release it as a single. Junior Campbell, who was the sort of the main guitar keyboard player, you know, he really liked my song, which was called I'll Be Home in a Day or So. So they released it on their album. Um, and also, but he was producing another band from Scotland because they're all Scottish, the Marmalade. Yeah. And they, so they did a version of the song, which was very, very, the song was called I'll Be Home in a Day or So. I think I said that. The lead singer of the Dream Police, that was the name of the band, he ended up being the main man in uh, Average White Band. Oh, yeah. Right. And he, uh, and so he, Hamish got, Stewart was that the? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it was Hamish Stewart. Yeah, yeah. And and then the Hamish went on to um, in the Paul McCartney band for years. Like he, if McCartney played guitar, then um, Hamish would play bass, and and then he'd swap to guitar when McCartney was playing bass. Oh, you okay, know? gee whiz. Tina Charles recorded one of your songs. Yes, yes. Um, she recorded a song. It was only a B-side, yep. but um, unfortunately, and she had a couple of big hits, um, unfortunately, though, the, the, the problem there was that the one where I had the B-side didn't make, you know, the hit didn't sell for her, so I didn't get any money from the B-side. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, 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 the great Brian Cat always talks about the fact that don't worry about it being the B-side, you get paid the same amount for the B-side as they do That's for the right. A-side. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Brian, what a great uh, songwriter. Yeah, yeah, great act Brian is. But Do you still play? Or do, what are you doing these days, Pete? I, I, I've only recently given up. Yep. I, I still play. Yep. I, I do... Um, I do work for uh, every week. I do like music sessions for autistic kids. Oh, good on you! Know, which I just love it, you know. And, and quite sadly, only two or three years ago, um, before Max Merritt died, uh, he was going to be on the Go Show in Melbourne, yep. the, on the Go Show um, that big concert thing, and. Uh, uh, Bob Bertels, Max's sax player, and I were going to join him, and and do the, and then Max took Crook again, you know. So sadly, I was really looking forward to that um, reunion. Yeah, and then he passed away not long after that. Yeah, yeah no, sad. Well, you were in some uh, pivotal uh, bands from the in the Australian rock and roll history. If you you know Max Spirit and the Medias, the Groove and the Mixtures, you certainly you tick some boxes. Yeah, I sort of. Um, I feel. Yeah, happy to have been there. Um, I, and the only thing when I look back now 
is I really didn't um, make enough of an effort to start doing a lot of you know some solo stuff. You know, yeah. was that just was that just happenstance that that didn't happen, or or did you always feel more comfortable in a band situation? Uh, well, actually, interestingly, you should say that because I actually was offered management from what turns out now to be um, two of the world's top managers, right? And one of them was Chaz Chandler, you know, Jimi Hendrix's manager. Yeah, yeah, it was in the it was was in the uh, the animals. Animals, yeah. Um, one like just before the groove broke up, you know, he he saw us somewhere in London and blown away. And then a little bit more recently, oh well, not recently, but probably twenty years ago, Roger Davies approached me. You know. Yep. But. But that was as Roger was, uh, as uh, Sherbet were, you know, upping stumps. How's that? (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) But but, um, And so Roger was looking for something else to do, and he actually explained to me what his thinking was, which was fabulous. And he said, I'm going to start building up a team of acts that people vaguely knew, you know, and uh, we'll take from there. But I'd just settled down in Western Australia and so I said to him, well, I'm a bit and, – and he was getting ready to go to America yep. and to the to his um, major successes in America. So I'm glad I didn't hold him back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he might not have got Tina Turner if he'd got you and uh, moved on to – Well, that's right. <laughs> I wouldn't have looked anywhere near as good in the tights. And the, and the <laughs> uh, uh, now, your health is good, mate? Not bad at all, Kevin. Yeah, I'm um, I'm 81 now. Yeah, and I so I'm quite happy to be sort of semi-retired. And but my health is I, I was always a fitness freak for years. You know. Yeah. I'm really glad I was. <laughs> yeah. Because I I don't really do anything now, but you know I can. In fact, I went to, yesterday just a, an old friend of mine here. I went to his funeral. You know so. Mm. I'm glad I'm not really lined up for any funerals yet, you know. Yep. Every day above ground is a good day. Yeah, my word. Bloody oath. Mate, it's been an absolute thrill for me to have a chat to you. Thank you so much um, for, for reminiscing about the, the good old days, and I'm, I'm sure there's plenty more good days still to come. I hope so. I hope so. Bloody oath. You know, it's been fantastic. Thanks, Kev. Good on you, Peter. Thanks so much for your time, mate. Cheers, mate.
as uh, Pete said in the interview, that song still stacks up beautifully. Simon says for the groove was great, a great thrill for me to talk to him and I wish him all the best. Now, Brian, I'm going to finish this program. Uh, two things I want to do at the end of this program. Three things, all right. sorry. Okay, first one I want to tell you a couple of people who are coming up on the show. And Brian okay. Canham is one of them from Pseudo Echo. Good talk with Brian. It was very good. And Dave Warner from Dave Warner in the Suburbs is uh, one of the other ones I wanted to mention. Not the cricketer. Not the cricketer. No, no. Absolutely not the cricketer. Uh, and the other thing I want to mention was Murcotts and remind everyone about uh, the uh, the special 15% off for Christmas. Uh, jump on the website, murcotts.edu.au. Uh, and also that telephone number, Brian, the only one you know. one three hundred triple five five seven six. Give Murcotts a call right now to ensure that your loved ones are safe. I've got a recurring nightmare in my head now that that's going to be the only number. When I get concussed or hit by a car or something, that's the one. I'm going to say, what, we'll call home for you. Who can we call? And I'll say, one three hundred five 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 seven six. That's good. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I think uh, old Mark and Murcott is getting <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's four in the morning. Petrol, yes. oh, for God's sake. Uh, and the other thing I wanted to do was I want to play um, mm. because everyone's talking about it. It's been on the telly, um, the Mushroom 50-year celebration. Miss, Oh, the was, one that I'm not going to. Uh, was, missing, was missing a couple of things. One was you. Uh, two was obviously Skyhooks. But three was someone singing 50 years. It's well, you'd reckon. You would, wouldn't you? You know, I wouldn't care. So, you know, I, I just think the song should have been sung at it. But um, I agree. And I get whether it's, you know, Joe Bloggs, I couldn't give a shit. Yeah, whether but, it's yeah, Christine Arnoux, whether it's, uh, you know, Deborah Conway, whether yeah. it's whoever it is. Um, yeah, it, it strikes me that it was a, a very big hit song for that particular label uh, and you were on that label and uh, – would have made sense for a 50-year celebration for this song to be part of it. So I wanted to finish this who episode with it. 1985, I'll tell you who did. <laughs> just heard this absolute horror story about our Cos Life Hurts tour. Um, I won't go into it, but, my God, I should have another house. Um, anyway, that's that's a story for another day. Yeah, okay. But, the life of Brian. Well, let, <laughs> let's uh, let's finish on a high note and a good note, and not a bum note. Uh, a very well sung note by yourself. So, uh, uh, here is here is our celebration of Mushrooms' fifty years with uh, Brian and the X Men doing fifty years. Ah, uh, this is when Mushroom were good. <laughs> good mushies <laughs> in those days. Uh, good on you, Brian. Take care, mate, uh, and enjoy. Thanks, Kev. Keep on rocking, my friend. Champagne in the air 
Yeah. 